Let's pray. Dear God, thanks for this day, and thanks that you bless us so much. Thanks for your word. Thanks that we get to just sit at your feet. And Lord, as we think of those folks in Papua New Guinea who just now have a copy of a Bible that they can hold, Lord, help us to never take it for granted that we, we have so many in our laps and our living rooms. And, and, uh, and Lord, it's just such a, such a treasure uh, that we don't want to lose the value of it for the familiarity of it. And so, uh, Lord, help us to take your word seriously and uh, give it the honor that it deserves today. In Jesus' name, amen. So in honor of God's word, let's open it to Ezekiel chapter 37. <coughs> when you're there, say there. There. So, as a matter of overview, which I'm going to overview, which you knew I would, because I always do, um, chapter 36 of Ezekiel to the end speak of a yet future time to the audience that Ezekiel is speaking to. Now, keep in mind, Ezekiel is in Babylon. He's carried off captive in the second of three conquests by Babylon. He was carried off in 597 B.C. He's speaking to a bunch of captives, essentially a bunch of prisoners, a bunch of refugees from Judah to uh, Babylon. And a lot of what he speaks is to those people in that time. A lot of what he speaks is yet future. And we'll go through the timeline again. We did this last week. We're going to go through it again just so everybody's got our heads around it. Is that fair? Yes. We'll, get, we'll do, the, do it again like we did last week so everybody gets their heads around it. Is that fair? Yes. Good, good. So, um, the time that basically Ezekiel's writing is sometimes sometime between 597 B.C. and 586 B.C., okay? The audience is the contemporaries of that time. If he's talking about future events, if we map out the biblical prophetic history of the nation of Israel, or Judah specifically, okay, it's going to go like, like this. In se- after 70 years of captivity, according to the word of Jeremiah, which Daniel uh, substantiated, uh, the Jewish people are going to go back to their homeland to the nation of Judah, to, to the city of Jerusalem. They're going to they're occupy that land. But they're going to occupy it as sort of a vassal state of Persia. Okay, They won't really own it. It won't be their land. They're going to go back as sort of a, a territorial of Persia. That's 70 AD. Okay, And, you know, I'm sorry. No, that's 70 years after this time in captivity. And then, you know, that's going to carry on. And the next time we see really significant Jewish history is the time of Christ, right? Are the Persians in control at the time of Christ? No, by this time the Romans are in control, right? And so uh, we got the Roman Empire, the time of Christ. Would the Jews in the, in the time of Christ, would they say, this is our land? No, no. they feel very oppressed. I mean, Roman, Roman domination is high on everybody's radar, right? They're not autonomous they're, they're not an autonomous people group they're not an autonomous nation so that's the time of christ 
A little while after the time of Christ, we have 70 A.D. If you draw on a timeline, the next big point would be 70 A.D. In 70 A.D., the Romans came in, came in and basically annihilated, decimated Jerusalem. Remember Jesus said, uh, when the disciples said, hey, that temple's pretty cool. And Jesus said, oh yeah, you think that's cool? The time is going to come when not one stone will be left upon another. And interestingly, uh, historians say that when the Romans came in at 70 A.D., they burned everything down, and when they burned everything down, the gold in the temple uh, sort of melted and kind of ran down between the rocks. Now, if you're a good looting Roman, right, and there's gold that dripped down into the cracks, what are you going to do? You're going to take your big pry bar, and you're going to leave not one stone upon another, yeah. right? And there you go. That's, that's how prophecy always gets fulfilled. So that's 70 A.D., and then you fast forward. Uh, they cease to be a nation, ceased to be an identified uh, group of people from 70 A.D. until 1948. In 1948, as we know, uh, God draws everybody back to Israel. Not everybody, but God begins to birth the nation of Israel again and its people and its language and its culture and its religion. And that's in 1948. We know that that process is not yet complete, and we know that it carries on even into, until today. And the day will come, I believe, very soon that we see the rapture of the church followed by a seven-year tribulation period. During that seven-year tribulation period, one of the things that's going to happen is there's going to be a big revival amongst the Jewish people. And God will restore the Jewish people uh, in a lot of ways at that point. And then at the end of that seven-year period, Jesus comes back, sets up his kingdom, which will reign for a thousand years on earth. Satan will be bound. We call it the millennial kingdom. Jesus reigns and rules. Satan is bound. It's not heaven, but it's a pretty cool place, right? And, uh, and then that sets the stage for final uh, judgment, heaven and hell, and we live to be with the Lord forever, right? It's pretty cool, right? And we are at, on that timeline somewhere between 1948 and the rapture. You know why we're between 1948 and the rapture? Because 1948 is, is past tense, and because, well, I don't know about you, but I'm still here. Okay, so the rapture hasn't happened yet, and uh, you're on your own, uh, but uh, um, there you go. And so we can put ourselves on a very specific time point. Here's the, here's the point you've got to keep in mind when you're reading prophecy. To Ezekiel, <clears throat> sorry, to Ezekiel, all these events are yet future, okay? So when Ezekiel says, hey, this is going to happen, we have to kind of in our minds, is he talking about the 70 years, uh, after the 70 years of, of, uh, you know, of captivity? Is he talking about the time of Christ? Is he talking about after 70 AD? Is he talking about 1948? Is he talking about the tribulation? Or is he talking about the millennial kingdom? Or is he talking about heaven and hell, right? And so all those are yet future in the mind of Ezekiel. And so you kind of see how this plays out. But in the, in the moment, Ezekiel is speaking to um, his contemporaries as he goes forward. So chapter 36 spoke mainly of the restoration of the land and the people. Chapter 37 speaks of the restoration of the nation itself. Um, somewhat familiar story. Uh, we may have read about it or heard about it. Uh, we sang about it this morning. So there you go. Verse one, the hand of the Lord came upon me and brought me out into the, in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the midst of the valley. And it was full of bones. So, Ezekiel's brought to this valley, uh, quote, in the spirit, 
okay? Uh, so probably, you know, he's not, I mean, different commentators can argue, and it really doesn't matter, honestly, uh, for our purposes, whether he literally saw these physical bones or, or what. You know, there's a, there's previous references uh, when he went in visions back to Jerusalem and then back to Babylon. We saw that in chapter 8 and some in chapter 11. Um, but the point is, God is taking Ezekiel out, and you know, really, whether he sees these bones physically or not, or if it's just in the spirit, we got to start getting our heads. If we're going to be prepared for heaven, right, we kind of have to prepare ourselves to say it probably doesn't matter, right? Because we're going to be in heaven in the spirit. You know, people ask these questions, you know, will my dog be in heaven? Um, you know, will I, uh, what will my mansion be like? What am I going to feel? Uh, you know, a lot of questions become irrelevant uh, when, we, when we really understand uh, the times and seasons and the heart of God, right? And what our future destiny is. So anyway, all that to say, um, Ezekiel sees these, these bones scattered all over the place. Now, interestingly, um, they're scattered. It's not like a skeleton here and a skeleton there, so... Take note of that. Then he caused me to pass by them all around. And behold, there were very many in the open valley. And indeed, they were very dry. So these bones are scattered all over. They're not intact skeletons. Why does that matter? Well, in the ancient world and in the Jewish culture, you've got to keep in mind, you know, every culture has its own sort of burial uh, customs. Is that fair? And... In, uh, in the Middle East, in the ancient world, Jewish culture, how one was buried was a big, big deal, right? I mean, it's, yeah, I have to have my, you know, I need to have a life that honors God, but how I am, my, a proper burial was, was huge. And I think sometimes we miss that in our society today because, you know, we don't really, you know, we kind of, you know, once you're dead, you're dead, and, and you know, people kind of think like that a little bit. But... Um, It's, it's an honorable thing to remember a loved one honorably, right? And it's almost like it's, it's an offense. It's, it's probably more than we can even comprehend to just like scatter somebody's bones in a field, right? Imagine that, right? The most, um, probably the most graphic death in the Old Testament, you know, some of you like graphic stories, and so I'm here for you, um, was uh, Jezebel. Remember Jezebel? Right? Jezebel, good gal or bad gal? Good. Biblical history 101. Jezebel is bad. Don't name your daughters Jezebel. Right? When Jezebel died, did she get a proper burial? No, she did not get a proper burial. The dogs drank up her blood. Right? And, um, and I forget, I think it was Jehu that killed her and then went into some place and then we came out. Oh, by the way, the dogs had already the dogs and the birds and everybody else had already taken care of her. And so they could never say, here lies Jezebel, right? That was like a graphic description of the, the, just the wickedness of Jezebel, okay? And that was, that was her demise. And so all that to say, these scattered dry bones, very dry, would have represented just a horrible situation. Horrible situation. Now, let me get you the punchline before we go much further. If you look down in verse 11, 
Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. And so God is telling us that these bones are a metaphor. Now, I'm just going to tell you this. I've said a million times, whenever you read prophecy, you interpret it as literally as possible, right? One exception to that is if God tells you it's a metaphor. God says, these bones are the whole house of Israel. God is explaining the metaphor. However, God does have some very literal application for us. God has some literal understanding for us. And as we read the scripture, we always say, you know, I want to see what it says. I want to see what it means. I want to see what it means to me. How does it apply to my life, right? I'm not standing in the valley of a bunch of dead bones, but how, does, how do these principles apply to my life? And so God is telling us that this is a metaphor, though it has some direct historical and prophetic application for us today. And he said to me, son of man, can these bones live? So I answered, oh, Lord God, you know. Now, I like that, right? Ezekiel, picture this, Ezekiel's logged some miles with the Lord so far, right? He knows how God operates a little bit, right? And God takes him out to this valley of dry bones, scattered all around, and God says, hey, Ezekiel, can these bones live? Now, I don't know if you're going through something now, or if you ever have, or you will in the future, something that feels like as impossible as dry bones come into life, right? But we all face those things to some degree or another. And it's a great question. I think sometimes we evaluate the, the grandeur, if you will, of a miracle by how common it is to us. Does that make sense? Okay. So since it doesn't, let me explain it. Okay. Has anybody ever seen a valley of dry bones come to life? No. You might even say, okay, if there's a guy laying here dead or in a tomb, could he come to life? Well, we might say, you know what? Jesus raised Jairus' daughter, Lazarus, Jesus himself. Seems like the kind of thing he does, right? I mean, it doesn't happen every day, but it happens, right? Dry bones come into life. Never happens. No other recorded thing in history that I'm aware of where that's happened. And so because of the, and here's my point. Dry bones coming to life is no more miraculous than the sun rose this morning in the east and will set tonight in the west. At exactly the right distance from the earth, I think Nate talked about this on Wednesday maybe, uh, at the exact right distance from the earth, right, a little farther we'd freeze to death, a little closer we'd burn up. Right? Anybody wake up this morning and think that was a miracle? No. Why? Familiarity. Familiarity. Why? Why don't we think that's a miracle? Because it happened yesterday. We can pretty much bank on it happening tomorrow. Right? So we tend, can I just encourage us in this way? We tend, be careful. Be careful. Be careful about familiarity. We stood in the presence of God this morning and sang worship to Him. 
Do we know that? Do we know that we were in the presence of God singing worship to Him? Telling Him how awesome He is. Or do we sing some songs? You know, some of them I like better than others, and I wish I'd sing more hymns. And Do I drink another cup of coffee, or do I come in and, you know, catch the the song that I may or may not like? Right? I'm just saying, right? I'm speaking to all of us, okay? Familiarity is one of our greatest enemies. Familiarity is one of our greatest enemies. Familiarity is one of our greatest enemies. So, Valley of Dry Bones, not very familiar to many of us. So when God says, can these bones live? The answer is, yes, they can, if God wants them to. And Ezekiel very wisely says, oh Lord, you know. And I like this. Ezekiel is giving room for God to do, what, to do that, but he's submitted to the will of God. He knows that according to the word of Isaiah, his ways are higher than our ways. Is there anything in your life that feels like dry bones? That you feel like, man, there's just no way. And if God would say, hey, can that problem get fixed? Are we able to say, Lord, you know. Lord, you know. If you want it to, in your way, in your time, you know. But we have to be submitted to God's will. God's way, God's time. And so I love uh, the heart of submission that Ezekiel expresses. Probably the wisest way to answer this question. So I answered, O Lord, O Lord God, you know. You know. Again, he said to me, prophesy to these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. So what's going to be the first thing that causes these bones to live? God's word. God's word. He doesn't say... And he said again, and he said to me, prophesy to these bones and say to them, we're going to have a bone resurrection ceremony. We're going to do a bone dance. We're going to have a bone strategy. We're going to have a bone campaign. Does he do any of that? No. We're going to raise money to see if we can buy some tendons and ligaments and cartilage. Does he do that? No. He says, say to them, the word of the Lord. O oh, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Again, familiarity. Familiarity kills us. When we woke up this morning, did we have a regard for this word of God? The word of God, the same word that speaks to these bones, right? If we don't, it's probably because of familiarity. We have to be super careful about that. Super careful. So the first thing God says is hear the word of the Lord. It's a great picture. No strategy, no resurrection formula, just the word of the Lord. And then he says, thus says the Lord God to these bones, surely I will cause my breath to enter you and you shall live. I will put sinews on you and bring flesh upon you, cover you with skin and with breath, and put breath in you, in you, and you shall live. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. Now, I think it's not uh, coincidental that breath 
The breath of God is a picture, is, is a, a description throughout the scripture of the Holy Spirit. So what do we have? We got the Word of God and the Spirit of God. What do we harp on all the time? What do we need in order to navigate this Christian life? We need the Word of God and the Spirit of God. The Word of God tells us what to do, where to go, how to, how to turn, how to discern. And the Spirit of God guides us into all truth, gives us the power to carry out the will of God. The same power, Romans 8, the same power that rose Jesus from the dead lives in you as a Christian. So none of us can, can get away with saying, well, I just can't do that. Well, the Word of God says to do this. I just can't. I'm, I'm not strong enough to do that. Well, we have access to the strength, to the power, the power of the Holy Spirit. And so the two things that God is doing to these bones, he's speaking his word and he's, and he's giving them breath. He's going to give them the breath of God. Verse 7. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I prophesied, there was a noise and suddenly a rattling and the bones came together bone to bone. Now that would have been pretty crazy, right? You're standing in a valley of dry bones, been there for a long time, long enough to dry out. And what's interesting is, I mean, it's hard to picture because it's such a weird scene. But if you're in a valley of dry bones and God says, speak to the bones, Do you just like say okay and start speaking to the bones? Right? Don't we tend to not do something if we don't think it's going to be effective? And as a general rule, Ezekiel wouldn't have had any experience in this strategy working. Right? And so, again, how many ministers are there in the room? Everyone who's a Christian is a minister, right? Everyone who's a Christian is a minister. We're all ministers. Can I tell you a critical principle of ministry? Do whatever God tells you to do, period. Well, if I do that, I'm afraid the outcome's not going to be like what I expected. Do what God says to do, period. Do what God says to do. Period. Well, boy, that's going to be weird. And I don't, uh, my mother-in-law is going to react, so she's going to think I'm nuts. She already thinks you're nuts. Okay? Do what God says to do. Period. That's our job in ministry. Ezekiel would have thought that's pretty weird to speak to a bunch of dry bones. And sometimes doing what God does... Doing what God says means that we faithfully carry out duties that we don't think should be effective. We don't think they'd be very effective. We want to do what's effective. Sometimes we're more concerned with effective than obedient and faithful. 1 Corinthians tells us it's moreover it's required in stewards that one be found faithful. Not effective, not successful, faithful. Paul told the Corinthians, I planted, Apollos watered, God gave the increase. If it's your job to plant, plant. If it's your job to water, water. Let God worry about the growth. Let God worry about the life. If it's your job to speak to dry bones, speak to dry bones. But let God do the growth. Let God 
bring the breath of life. You don't want the breath of you in these bones, right? We want the breath of God in these bones. So verse 8, Indeed, as I looked, the sinews and the flesh came upon them, and the skin covered them over, but there was no breath in them. You ever feel like this? Like, okay, I obeyed God, and now i got a bunch of dead corpses laying around. Right? So, God, I had, I had a valley of bones scattered around. Now i got a bunch of dead corpses. Like, what are you doing, God? You ever feel like that? Like, I did what you said. I have had so many people come to me over the years. Super challenged by this idea, well, I did what I was supposed to do, and it hasn't worked out yet. Right? You ever feel that way? Like, I did what I was supposed to do, and... Yeah, maybe there was a, maybe there was a, uh, initially, maybe there was a, um, you know, maybe I saw some fruit, maybe I saw some, some, uh, some results that I was kind of looking for might happen if I follow the Lord this way, and if I'm obedient and faithful, and, you know, initially maybe it was, but now it's just kind of like, it's just kind of like, God's left me disillusioned. That's not up to us. Our job is to be faithful and obedient. It's not up to us. And he who began a good work, let me just tell you that, let me just encourage you. If, if you've ever come to me with a challenge, you've probably heard me say this verse. He who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. If you can look at, if, if you've responded to the Lord, if you've asked Jesus come into your heart, forgive you of your sins, receive the Holy Spirit into your life, become a Christian, and you've seen anything out of that, which I don't think, honestly, you can genuinely do that without seeing something, okay? If it's not yet completed in your mind, if your sanctification, your growth in the Lord is not quite where you want it to be, don't beat yourself up. Take comfort that He, God, who began a good work in you, will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. We're all a work in progress. Some a little more seasoned than others, but we're all a work in progress. None of us are there. And so we're all a little bit like these corpses on the ground that haven't quite, you know, we've we're no longer bones, but we're not exactly uh, where we want to be. And so there's all these corpses laying around. And then also, verse 9, he said to me, Prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, Thus says the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O, breathe, o, o breath, and breathe on these slain, that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath came into them, and they lived and stood upon their feet, an exceedingly great army. So the breath from the four winds comes, and now these guys are no longer corpses. They're alive. But notice what happens when they come to life. They line up like a what? A bunch of like fat and sassy Christians sitting around singing Kumbaya and feeling good about themselves? Listening to Caleb? Right? 
Or are they an exceedingly great army? Can I tell you this? When God does a work in your life, He does it for a reason other than to make you fat. Is that fair? Now, do we get a warm, fuzzy feeling once in a while when, the, you know, when God breathes His life into us? Does that make us feel warm and fuzzy? Yeah. Does He bless us once in a while? Yeah. Do we maybe get, I don't know, something that we think is cool? Yeah. But is that the end all as to why God breathes life into us? No. The end all is so we can carry out thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Right? These guys have the breath of life. They've, been, they've heard the word of God. They've had the breath of God. And now they are standing up an exceedingly great army for a purpose. An army has a purpose to exist other than to feed themselves. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. They indeed say, Our bones are dry, our hope is lost, and we ourselves are cut off. So, this is the whole house of Israel. So now we're talking about the whole house of Israel. So, the whole house of Israel calls for a review of the history of the whole house of Israel. Okay? You hear history of the, of the whole house of Israel? Desperately longing for a history review? Ravenous for a history review? I'll do it anyway. So, after the reign of David, there was his son Solomon. Those are the last two major dynasties in the nation of Israel. After the son of Solomon came his son Rehoboam. Okay? Some of you know this story. During the reign of Rehoboam, a bunch of people came to him and said, your dad taxed us a little heavy. Can you go easy on us? And he consults with the older, wiser guys because the older guys, the guys with white hair are always wiser. So he, has, he consults with the older, wiser guys and they say, what should we do? And they say, if you treat those people graciously, they'll serve you forever. Well, that's old school. What else? So he goes to the younger guys. And he goes to the younger guys, and he says, what should we do? And we said, they said, you know what you should do? You should say, if you thought my dad was bad, you ain't seen nothing yet. So he likes that advice. He takes that advice, and what happens? They rebel, led by Jeroboam. And so now you have a divided kingdom. you got the southern kingdom, with it's called Judah, with its headquarters in Jerusalem, led by Rehoboam. And that's the tribes of Judah and Benjamin, basically. And then you got the northern ten tribes, which were then called the nation of Israel, initially led by Jeroboam. And then for the next several generations, you've got northern kingdom, southern kingdom, northern kingdom, southern kingdom. As you read through the books of Kings and Chronicles, northern kingdom, southern kingdom, northern kingdom, southern kingdom. The northern kingdom uh, capital was Samaria, um, and southern kingdom was Ju Jerusalem. In 722 B.C., the northern kingdom gets conquered by the Assyrians, and they scatter. Whoa. Scattered. How do we maintain our national identity as a people group if we're scattered? Have you heard of the lost tribes of Israel? Have you ever heard any reference to that? The lost tribes, of, they got scattered. 722 B.C. Oh my goodness, what are we going to do? How can we regather those people? We have to send out surveys and do DNA testing and all kinds of crazy stuff in order to regather those people. Or maybe God will just do it. 
right? The northern kingdom, scattered in 722 B.C. The southern kingdom, uh, a few reprieves of good kings, of godly um, revival, and so they lasted a little bit longer. But by, by and large, bottom line, they were continuing to decline until 586 B.C., basically the time we're talking about here, they are conquered by the Babylonians. So the northern kingdom scattered 722 B.C., southern kingdom carried off to Babylon 586 B.C. The kingdoms, after the reign of Solomon, the point is, after the reign of Solomon, the kings, kingdoms were never together. But now he says, this represents the whole house of Israel. And he's going to elaborate down a little later on to clarify, yes, we're talking about the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. It's going to be one kingdom reunited. Because you know what they said? They said, our hope is lost, our bones are dry, and we're cut off. Their national hope was lost to the point, now they're captives in Babylon. The northern kingdom's been gone. The southern kingdom is now captive. Their hope is gone. Hopelessness is a terrible thing. Hopelessness is a terrible thing. And if there's anything we can glean from the scriptures, if there's anything we can glean from, the cha- from this chapter of dry bones, is there is no such thing, please hear me now, If you hear me on this sentence only and then go back to sleep, fine. I'll be like preaching to dry bones, right? There is no such thing as hopelessness to the Christian. Period. Period. There is no such, well, you don't know my situation. It doesn't matter. Is it worse than a valley full of dry bones? No. 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 And I believe God would speak to us today. Can these bones live? To which we should say, Lord, you know. It's up to you. You know. And I'm burdened for this because I see people, and honestly, as we're all ministering, because we're all ministers, and we navigate in this community and around the world, we encounter, I believe we're encountering more and more and more and more completely hopeless people. And it's one of the saddest things in the world to see, is a hopeless person. But there is no hopelessness for the Christian. There's no such thing as hopelessness to a Christian. So, these people, they thought, man, our land is gone. You know, Solomon, the end of Solomon's reign was, seven, was 930 B.C., so if you do the math, by this point in their history, the kingdom's been divided for about 350 years, right? And sometimes we think when we read these ancient history texts, we're thinking, you know, one's just like the other. But think of our, you know, of our, the land we live in. 350 years ago, it wasn't a nation. You know, it was barely occupied as far as we know 350 years ago that was a long time ago well that's the la- in, in the time of Ezekiel's writing 350 years almost 350 years was when the kingdom was together it's been divided since that time they would feel hopeless as a nation of ever reuniting what's amazing is that they'll continue to be non-reunited until when? 
1648. So from 930 BC until 1948, there is no United Kingdom of Israel in the land that we know as modern day Israel. It's a miracle. And so he plays it out. Therefore prophesy, verse 12, and say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, O my people, I will open your graves and cause you to come up from your graves and bring you into the land of Israel. Then you shall know that I am the Lord God. When I've opened your graves, O my people, and brought you up from your graves, I'll put my spirit in you and you shall live and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I, the Lord, have spoken it and performed it, says the Lord. Now, you know, again, when he talks about him coming up out of the graves, we don't know if that's more, again, a, a spiritual reference like the Valley of Dry Bones. We do know that when Jesus died, right, a lot of people came up out of, the, out of their graves. So, you know, there's some, there's some reference to that. But he says, I'm going to place you, verse 14, in your own land. I'm going to place you in your own land. So they're in Babylon. After 70 years, they're going to go back. Is that their own land? No, that's Persian land at this point right? During the time of Jesus, is that their own land? No, that's Roman land, right? 1948, is it their land? Well, it depends on who you, <laughs> which newscast you like to read, right? Sort of their own land. So you see this? We see it sort of being fulfilled, but do you think there's yet more to come? Yeah, yeah, for sure. So we see it in process, uh, but there is a, if you look on the map, there's a nation called Israel, and it's in this location that God is describing in Ezekiel, and they are a people group, and they do have their own language, and they have their own culture, and they have their religion, and then you shall know that I, the Lord, have spoken. It's beautiful when the Word of God gets confirmed as the Word of God. It is nothing short of crazy miraculous that the united kingdom of the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom of Israel, Israel and Judah, had been separated since 930 B.C., the time of Rehoboam, and never reunited again until 1948. That's nuts, right? So... We see this, we, we have the privilege of seeing this, at least partially, very much fulfilled in our day. Verse 15, again, the word of the Lord came to me saying, as for you, son of man, take a stick for yourself and write on it for Judah and for the children of Israel, his companions. Then take another stick and write on it for Joseph, the stick of Ephraim, and for all the house of Israel and his command, companions. So, Review again. Jacob had 12 sons, right? One of whom was named Joseph, right? Joseph, you recall, got sent down to Egypt, um, uh, rescued the nation, all that. He had two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. Ephraim was the greater of, Ephraim, the tribe of Ephraim became the greater tribe, right? And because Jacob wanted to give honor to uh, Joseph, Basically, he made Ephraim and Manasseh like one of the 12 originals, okay? So, or one of the, one of the 12 patriarchs. And so, 
just suffice to say, in the southern kingdom, you've got the, nation, the tribe of Judah and Benjamin. Benjamin becomes a small tribe, kind of gets basically swallowed up in what is then called Judah. Okay, But in the northern ten tribes, the, the most prominent, largest tribe was the tribe of Ephraim. And so sometimes in the biblical narrative, you'll see Ephraim mentioned, and really that's a reference to the northern tribe of Israel the northern ten tribes, Ephraim as a representative, as the predominant tribe of the northern ten tribes. And so, in the context here, you take it as that. You're taking, God says, I want you to take two sticks, one that's going to be Judah, and one that's going to be Ephraim, and basically that's the the northern tribe, and we're going to put them together. Verse 17, then join them together, join them, then join them one stick to another for yourself into one stick and they will become one in your hand. And when the children of your, sp- your people speak to you, saying, Will you not show us what you mean by these? Say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Surely I will take the stick of Joseph, which is in the hand of Ephraim, that's the northern tribe, or the northern kingdom, and the tribes of Israel, his companions, and I will join them with it, with the stick of Judah, and make them one stick, and they will be one in my hand. And with the sticks, and the sticks on which you write will be in your hand before their eyes. And so God uses the sticks as metaphors of the northern and southern kingdoms. Those come together in 1948. Amazing. Then say to them, verse 21, Thus says the Lord God, Surely I will take the children of Israel from among the nations, wherever they have gone, and will gather them from every side and bring them into their own land. And I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel, and one king shall be king over them all. They shall no longer be two nations, nor shall they ever be divided into two nation, two kingdoms again. So they'll never be divided into two kingdoms again. And we see the Lord, again, beginning to do this. It's a process, right? But God says, I'm going to bring back the nation, the United Nation, or the United Kingdom of, of, not the United Kingdom or the United Nations, but the United Nation of Israel, the Northern and the Southern Kingdom, right? I'm going to bring them, I'm going to put them in place there in 1948, which he did. We call it Israel on the map. And he says, this is amazing. He said, I'm going to start bringing people. I'm going to start bringing the Jewish people. Check this out. Around the early 1900s, the number of Jews that were living in what is modern-day Israel was about 50,000, which was about 10% of the population of people living in that area. 50,000 people around 1900s, early 1900s, right? Now, it's around 7 million people. And it occupies, and the Jewish people make up approximately 74% of the population. So in the last we'll say 100 years, we've gone from 50,000 Jews there to 7 million. And and percentage-wise, we've gone from 10% Jewish occupation to 74% Jewish occupation. Now, in light of that, let me read these verses again. Thus says the Lord, Surely I will take the children of Israel from among the nations. They came from somewhere, right? Wherever they've gone. And I will gather them from every side and bring them into their own land. And I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel. And one king shall be over them all. They shall no longer be two nations. 
nor shall they ever be divided into two kingdoms again. Isn't that crazy? Now, this is not completely fulfilled, right? But we sure see things moving that way, right, over the last hundred years. Verse 23, they shall not defile themselves anymore with their idols, nor with their detestable things, nor with any of their transgressions, but I will deliver them from all their dwelling places in which they have sinned and will cleanse them. Then they shall be my people, and I will be their God. Now, interestingly, the thing that sent the Jewish people off into, into Babylonian captivity was their idolatry, their pagan idol worship, right? Once they went into Babylon, sort of the, the hotbed of idol worship, they got their fill of it, and they never struggled with that again. They struggled with plenty of other things, but they never struggled with pagan idol worship <clears throat> after their time in Babylon. But... So, you know, he says they're not going to defile themselves anymore with their idols, nor detestable things, nor with any of their transgressions. Are the Jewish people sort of delivered of all of their transgressions as of today? No, no. And so what we see, again, is a partial fulfillment. It's still in process. This will be fully fulfilled in yet future time, in the millennium. Verse 24, David, my servant, shall be king over them, and they shall all have one shepherd. They shall also walk in my judgments and observe my statutes and do them. Then they shall dwell in the land that I have given to Jacob, my servant, where your fathers dwelt, and they shall dwell there. They, their children, their children's children forever, and my servant David shall be their prince forever. And so you could read 50 different commentators, and, and uh, half of them say this is a reference to David himself, and half of them say it's a reference to Jesus the Messiah, the, quote, son of David. And so um, it honestly doesn't matter. You know, at one point he says here, verse 24, uh, David shall be king, and then in verse uh, 25, my servant David shall be prince. Maybe Jesus will be king, and David literally will be uh, the prince under him. Who knows? For our purposes, it doesn't matter. But the point is, it says the kingdom will endure forever. And so we're talking about the millennial kingdom that sets the stage into final forever, heaven and hell. And this is a kingdom that God will reign. Verse 26. Moreover, I will make a covenant of peace with them, and it shall be an everlasting covenant with them. I will establish them and multiply them, and I will set my sanctuary in their midst forevermore. My tabernacle also shall be with them. Indeed, I will be their God, and they shall be my people. The nations also will know that I, the Lord, sanctify Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forevermore. So God will establish his kingdom of peace. He's going to establish worship by his tabernacle. Tabernacle literally means dwelling place, right? And, uh, and again, this is carried out. It's obviously not, this is obviously not fulfilled now or since 1948, but it's obviously on its way and it's obviously yet to be fulfilled. And, uh, that will be in the millennial kingdom and then beyond where he says forevermore. Let me just mention one parenthetical thought, if I could. He says, moreover, I will make a covenant of peace with them. And it shall be an everlasting covenant with them. Shortly after, immediately after the rapture of the church, I believe, the Antichrist will manifest, right? And if you look at Thessalonians, it says the spirit of the Antichrist is basically already at work, right? 
and there's sort of this this good versus evil struggle in the world. You ever notice that? There's a good versus evil struggle in the world. What happens in that in that tension? The spirit of Antichrist is at work. What happens when the church is raptured? Can you imagine what, um, let's say, people that think Christianity is getting in the way of their agenda? Is there anybody like that on earth today? Yeah. Can you read about them on CNN? Yeah. Can you read from them on CNN? Yes. So you got this spirit of Antichrist at work. Is it work? And Thessalonians tells us that it, that tension exists until he, the Holy Spirit, is taken out of the way. Right? And then what are we going to have? Hell on earth. Okay? And the Antichrist has got basically a blank check. Okay? One of the things he's going to do, perhaps one of the first things that the Antichrist is going to do, is he's going to make a covenant of peace with the Jewish people. A covenant of peace with the Jewish people. Now, personally, I don't, uh, when I look at prophetic scripture and end times events and all that, I don't really look for the Antichrist. I look for Jesus to come back and I want to be raptured, right? Because I don't plan on being here for the tribulation. That's just my eschatology. But you can argue with that if you want. That's fine. Um, but some people look for the Antichrist. Does that make sense? I wonder if he's still, I wonder if he's alive on planet Earth today. You know, a lot of things are lining up, and they, a lot of things are lining up. I've told you about a lot of them that are lining up. We're going to read about some more that are lining up next week that are pretty remarkably relevant, honestly. Um, but as I see things lined up, is it conceivable that the Antichrist could be alive today? It's conceivable. Do you think he wears like a red suit and walks around with a pitchfork and says, Arr. got a scowl? Do you think, he's got, do you think that's his, his deal? No. He's going to be so smooth. He's going to be so smooth. I'm preaching to the choir because you guys won't be there, but I'm just going to tell you this. During the tribulation, he's going to be so smooth. And his first strategy is going to be to set up a covenant of peace with the Jewish people. I believe rebuild their literal temple, right? And then halfway through that period, around three and a half year mark, he's going to do what Antiochus Epiphanes sort of did way back before the time of Christ. It's called the abomination of desolation. He's going to go into the temple and he's going to basically sacrifice a pig and demand himself to be worshipped. Now, if you're a good Jewish person during the tribulation, you've seen all those annoying Christians suddenly disappear. Things are a little bit weird on planet Earth and lots of tribulation and, you know, all kinds of stuff. And if you believe any of Revelation, literally, it's going to be nuts. But you're only kind of, you know, if you're a good Jewish person, you know, your, your, your source of peace is at least we got this guy that's our guy, Right? We got this guy, our guy. He's our agent of peace. He made a covenant with us. Anyway, three and a half years into it, he's going to go in and demand to be worshipped. And the Jewish people are going to say, whoops. And that's when Jesus says, 
hey, you who were in Judea at, those t- at that time, flee to the mountains, right? And so anyway, all that to say, that's during the tribulation. So beware of, I mean, we want to seek peace, right? We want to be agents of peace. We want to be gracious people. But we also want to be discerning. God says, I will make a covenant of peace with them. Satan loves to be a great imitator. The Antichrist is going to imitate that covenant of peace that God is going to make with his people. So be careful. Be discerning. Satan is a great copycat. So, prophetically, God is going to restore the dead nation of Israel. He's already started to do that, right? How cool is it that from 930 B.C. to 1948, we have the privilege of looking back and saying, yep, he's working on that. That is a work in progress. I see some of this, some of this is clearly not fulfilled yet. You know, David is not prince and it's not, you know, they're not like rid of all their transgressions and all that. But, whoa, we've got a, reuni- we've got a reunited northern and southern kingdom of Israel living on that piece of real estate that God described in the Bible. Is that crazy? That's crazy. And yet also that tells me whatever I think is impossible in my own life is possible by the will of God. And I also know that there is no death that he's not able to resurrect. And even in that part, you know, where the flesh came on and they were corpses, I know that he who began a good work in you, Philippians 1 verse 6, he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. We should take hope in that, right? We should take great hope in that. And so it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. You know, honestly, sometimes we can think about prophetic things and read the, read the, some people get wigged out about prophecy, right? We should take tremendous comfort in that. Paul told the Thessalonians, you know, probably some of the most prophetic verses in the, in the New Testament. Paul said, comfort one another with these words. Prophecy should be comfort. Prophecy, if nothing else, I mean, what we said today, if nothing else, should say, whoa, God is God. God's handled problems bigger than mine before. God's going to continue it. God, the fact that he's 90% there tells me that he's going to do it. And it shouldn't be unsettling to us. It should be tremendously comforting. If he comes today, praise the Lord. If he comes 100 years from now, praise the Lord. Either way, he's in control. Let's pray. Lord, thanks for your goodness. Thanks that you are so in control of the eternal timeline and of the number of hairs on our head. Lord, we thank you that you're so uh, eager to have fellowship with us. We're thankful that you came and died for us. We're thankful that you give us your word. You give us your spirit. You give us a purpose. Lord, that we can be a part of your great army. Lord, we count it an honor.
to be your servants. So Lord, help us to be faithful servants. Guide us and lead us, please, in Jesus' name. Amen. Everybody have an awesome, awesome week.